we are in a very interesting place in the in the history of our nation and in the history of the church in the u.s now the lord knows there's a church in the u.s he sees it as part of his body so though he's not dumb in that he doesn't know there's a church in the u.s it's not the u.s church to him they're all his kids um, and and we fit together with those that are not in the u.s that belong to jesus christ and they outnumber us significantly uh 95 of the assemblies of god people approximately are in other countries than the u.s it's very interesting but um, we are we are looking forward now to god giving us real strength grace translates in this sentence as strength to get to get it done real grace to love him real grace to love each other that's who we are and what we do how we do it is to grow connect and go so here is the here is the picture we have all of this opportunity to do the work of god we are looking to win people to jesus and it is time to to just make sure that every day every day we are putting ourselves in the position to bless someone especially if they are lost not walking with the lord whatever term you like to use green heathen whatever term you prefer we are the people that's why we're here we have this building and on this property and i i'm grateful and i'm thankful to you for your faithfulness and the way we have been able to have this it's a wonderful place to meet this church building cannot kick down the gates of hell you the church the church church have to kick in hell's gates jesus said on the confession and on the life of the apostle peter and 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 if you don't like that teaching that jesus that uh, peter is is the foundation of the church he and the other apostles are the foundation of the church we read later in the scripture and jesus is the head of the corner so get over that worry that oh we're gonna we're gonna puff peter up too much no the lord took care of him and um he had to do it more than once and some of us can identify with that and so the lord built on peter and the other apostles the lord jesus being the uh, chief cornerstone he built a church and his word is i will build my church i will build my church how does he do that well he provides all the salvation that you could ever need every idea that is connected with the sin of man and the forgiveness of god and the legality the righteousness of god god is not capable of looking at sin and saying it's okay it doesn't matter did you know that so he had to set up a system by which he could say that and it would be legal and legally he took your sins and mine and put them in jesus who had no sin of his own and jesus is fully god and fully man lived without sin 
kept the covenant of the Ten Commandments, the only person who ever kept it, kept that and then offered himself, struggling through that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he offered himself to drink the cup of your sin and mine. And he didn't like it. It did not look good to him. It was not a good day. But he drank it. It cost him so much emotionally that he sweat blood, which is, which is a rare but known medical phenomenon, usually connected with over-the-top stress. Jesus drank all of that junk that I wanted to do, never got to do it, most of it. And the stuff I did do, and all of the guilt, all of the neurotic unbelief stuff that was piled up against God because I just couldn't believe he loved me that much and would forgive me and put all that in Jesus. And if you're new among us, I used to be the worst sinner. I met, then I met you, but no, no, I... <laughs> Seriously, I said in my heart, I am the worst sinner that's ever lived. Now, that's not a good role, folks, if that's where you are. Now, Paul claimed that. I finally was healed enough and believed the Lord enough to say, have it, Paul. You're welcome to that title because I'm not, I'm not worse than you. I'm just mean, ornery, ordinary, rebellious Here's our R word, recalcitrant, you know, recalcitrance. Stubborn refusal to do the right thing. Mean, ornery, stubborn, recalcitrant sinner. As are you. And Jesus took all that junk into him. Yes, he even carried recalcitrance. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's a good thing. I'd be dead. And most of you. He carried that, paid for it. On the cross, he uttered the cry of the victory being won. Now, the victory, this, this was what was cried by the generals in the army of that day, which meant the back of the enemy is broken. Now, we still have to do the mopping up operation, but the back is broken when he said it's finished. It's finished. It's done in the face of that, this is so cool. Two things. We get absolute forgiveness. And since Jesus kept the law and we receive him by faith, we have kept the law. Now, I think the Ten Commandments on the wall can help a lot of things, especially the artists who do the... No, I'm sorry. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying take that away. That's good grief. Why wouldn't you want something as righteous as that on the wall? However, we in Christ Jesus have kept them. And if we sin, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And the Holy Spirit is faithful to get in our face and deal with us in our recalcitrance or whatever our issue is. He comes. You know what? First chapter of Philippians says, uh, I'm confident in this, that the one who began the good work in you will carry it on to the day of Jesus Christ. I'm going to be okay. As recalcitrant as I have been, mean, sneaky, underhanded, or, or out in the open, anger, display, jerk you around with my, whatever my thing has been, 
The Lord is larger than that. The grace of God is greater than that. And I will be there. Come along. You're going to have to really dig your heels in to miss this. We do not believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. But you're going to have to be tough to get away from the Holy Spirit because he intends to get you in. Now, this is time to go, woohoo, or however we do it. This is the time for that. But I can settle you down a little bit. Let's just, let's don't go there just yet. So we have now this, this thing that is done. And when Jesus cried, it's finished. The mopping up thing is left to us. Did you ever struggle with the issue where Paul says, I fill up in my body that which was lacking the sufferings of Jesus Christ? I didn't like that. What's this? It's finished business. What is, what's Paul got to give? Well, it's pretty clear. It's, this is not rocket science, folks. This is Jesus didn't carry the message. He went home to be with the Father to pray for us. That's how important prayer is. So while you're fasting this, this next 400 weeks or however long this is, who called a 40-day fast? Anyway, when you're praying about this, you're, you're fitting in with what the Savior is doing and his main reason for existence at this moment and he is, still, he is still locked in time, by the way. He has, his humility continues on. God the Creator is locked in a human body praying to God the Father. This is heavy stuff, folks. This is just like, oh my goodness, jumping is not enough. But I don't know what to do. So Jesus is praying and he left us here. And we get to fill up in our body that which is lacking of Jesus' suffering, which is carry the message. So that's where we're going. We must grow. We must connect so we can go. And if it's just across the table at your house, across the aisle in school or on the job, or across the nation or around the world, we must go. That's what we do and who we are. In the face of that, we have an interesting thing. Some of you have read a book entitled The Harbinger. I recommend that book. It is profound. And uh, it, it, was, it, it will do this to you. It's like, yeah, I believe that. And then you start saying, but where's the... U.S. and all this, because it's about the U.S., and it's like, what? <laughs> what am I going to do? And I remember when I first read that book, there was a guy that came to me who feels called from another country to come to this country as a missionary to bring hope to this part of the world. And the hope that he is talking about is right in the face of this sort of thing. And we have this we have this very, very seriously before us because the United States has postured itself in its present policy relating to Israel like this. Last summer, June 29, Mohammed Morsi took off his mask of moderation, pledging to work for the release from U.S. federal pr prison of Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman. Now, Mohammed Morsi is the president of Egypt, newly elected. Abdel Rahman 
was the mastermind behind the jihadist cell in New Jersey that perpetrated the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. His jihadist cell in 1990 murdered Rabbi Mir Kahan. They plotted the, the assassination of the then president of, of um, Egypt, Hosni Mubarak. They planned bombings of the New York landmarks, including the Lincoln and Holland Tunnels, UN headquarters. Abdel Rahman was the leader of the Islamic group responsible for the assassination of Anwar Sadat in 1981, he wrote the fatwa, which is an Islamic ruling permitting Sadat's murder because Sadat had entered into a peace treaty with Israel. This Islamic group, which its official name, Islamic group, is designated by the U.S. State Department as a specially designated terrorist organization. Now, did you follow that? Morsi, president of Egypt, first public speech to, to his people after his election promised to work for the release of Abdel Rahman. Now, after Abdel Rahman's conviction in connection with the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Abdel Rahman issued another fatwa calling for jihad against the U.S. After the 9-11 2001 attacks, Osama bin Laden cited Omar Abdul Rahman's fatwa as the religious justification for the attacks on 9-11. When Morsi called for Abdel Rahman's release, he aligned himself and his government with the worst enemies of the U.S., by calling for Abdel Rahman's release, Morsi signaled that he cares more about winning the acclaim of the most violent, America-hating jihadists in the world than with cultivating relations with America. And in response to that, Morsi's unfriendliness, the White House invited him to visit the president. Other supporters of Abdel Rahman have been invited to the White House. Despite the fact that federal law makes it a felony to assist members of a specially designated terrorist organization, the State Department invited group member Hani Nur Eldin, newly elected member of the Islamist-dominated Egyptian parliament, to visit the U.S. and meet with senior U.S. officials at the White House. The State Department spokeswoman, Victoria Newland refused to provide any explanation for the administration's decision to break, fred break federal law in order to host Eldin. The U.S. administration was urging Palestinians and Israel to renew negotiations to satisfy the Palestinians' insatiable desire to celebrate terrorists, Prime Minister Netanyahu offered to release 124 Palestinian terrorist murderers from Israeli prisons in exchange for a meeting with PA Chief Abbas. And I put in my notes this word, alas. Abbas refused. He didn't think Netanyahu's offer was generous enough.
The United States policy responded by attacking Israel as it being all their fault because these meetings could not be held. In short, it's all well and fine for the newly elected president of what was until two years ago the U.S.'s most important Arab ally to embrace a terror mastermind indirectly responsible for the murder of almost 3,000 Americans. It's okay to invite jihadist terror groups to come to Washington, meet with senior officials, and, uh, and by the way, the, you guys fund that if you're a taxpayer. It's even okay for a head of a would-be state that the U.S. is trying to create, the Palestinians, to embrace every single Palestinian terrorist including those who have murdered Americans. The disparity between the administration's treatment of the Morsi government on the one hand and the Netanyahu government on the other places the nature of the Middle East conflict in stark relief. The theory on which the administration based its Middle East policy is that jihadists hate America because the U.S. supports Israel. And so to use an official uh, word placing daylight between the U.S. and Israel is hoped that the jihadists would put aside their hatred of America. This policy has been in place for three and a half years. Its record of spectacular failure is unbroken. The simple fact is that during this time, America has dispensed with far fewer jihadists than they have empowered. Since January 2009, the Muslim world has become vastly more radicalized. Not one Islamist government in power in 2009 has been overthrown, but several key states that were led by pro-Western U.S. allied governments are now ruled by Islamists. Rather than, the, than contend with the bitter policies and consequences of this administration, the, the policy is simply to deny the dangerous reality. Worse, the explanations from the White House, certain media outlets argue that the U.S. should respond to the ascent of its enemies by pretending its enemies are its friends. And that's our policy. Which is, of course, requiring a complete denial of reality. Now, this brings us to the daylight, put that in quotes, between the U.S. and Israel. Numerous apologies to the Muslim world have been accompanied by numerous attacks on Israel. That's been our policy for the last three and a half years. And then we come to the text of our series, which is Zechariah 12. I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. What do we do in the face of that kind of statement? That prophecy 
has not been fulfilled. You, you can't say that's already been fulfilled. Nope. Not in recorded history. And then we put up against that, the Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12, 1, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That's kind of scary. And I've, I've, I read the harbinger and, I, and I'm saying, okay, God, I believe that. I believe this book is probably right on. And if that book is wrong, I can look at our foreign policy toward Israel and the other Middle Eastern nations. And it, and it has a worse effect on me than the, than the book, The Harbinger. What am I going to do? Where is all this power and victory? Where is all this excitement you had a minute ago, Pastor? It's still there. I mean, let me help you with this. It was a couple of weeks ago, over the anniversary of 9-11, which came on a Tuesday. This happened to be 11 years after the fact. It fell on a Tuesday also. So Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday nights... Several hundred of us <clears throat> met here in town to humble ourselves and pray. We were seeking forgiveness and healing, and the subject was our having left our first love. And you say, I know that passage, and that's talking, about, that's talking about personal stuff. That's individual. Well, it was written to a church. Matter of fact, it was written to the original church. We did something in this study and in this, in this series of meetings. We took the seven churches of, of Revelation 2 and 3 and made them respective church ages, respective eras. And that's been done for a long time, and I never did see much value in that until we did it looking at the first sin, which was leaving our first love our first love after God, after Jesus Christ, our first love would be for the nation of Israel because they brought the Savior to us. They are the apple of God's eye. I know that we quote that to each other, and if you're Jewish, that's a good thing. That probably is exclusive. This bunch that's the apple of the Lord's eye are probably those who are, are Hebrew in their, in their lineage. Now, that doesn't take away promises from us, folks. We've got more promises than we can believe for. We are so blessed. It is incredible what God has for us and what he's going to do in the face of this. If I understand where we are and what the Scripture is saying, God is is calling us to make sure our heart is right toward Israel. If you're not praying every day as part of your prayer list for Israel, please put that on there. If you don't know what to say, use my words on Sunday morning. God bless Israel. Save every Jew, every non-Jew in Israel. Bring peace to Jerusalem. 
and have mercy on the United States that we may bless and not curse Israel. Now, so far, though I pray that prayer every day, that's pretty much word for word. And I guess I should run in there and say, Lord, you know about Israel, ditto. No, I, I want to hang out with him. It's not how short I can make this prayer. It's how much I can enjoy the presence of the Father and my faith can be built and my life can be sanctified in his presence. So I don't do that. That was, you got the, the, that was one of those jokes that doesn't mean anything. Okay. When, when we cry this, we are identifying ourselves with other than what is our current foreign policy in the U.S. And that doesn't make me uh, a rebel against civil authority. It makes me come to terms with whether God is going to keep his promise. Is God going to keep his promise to bless us? We have prophecies about this congregation. We have prophecies about the U.S. We have expectation. We have prayed for 25 or 30 years, a, a bunch of us ministers and, and later lay people joined us to pray for revival in middle America. But what we did in that three-day thing if, a couple weeks ago was we asked God to forgive us for leaving our first love and all of the other sins. And at, in that first era, which was up until the end of about the first century, there were sins of anti-Semitism in the church. You didn't know that. And every era, we, we the church, have persecuted the Jewish people after Constantine became a whatever he was, he's called a Christian, and uh, Christianity became the state religion, that really picked up speed because now the church had power, and so we could, we could throw the Jews out, or we could burn up their synagogues, we could confiscate their properties, and we did all of that over and over again. The Crusades have been told to us that this was to deliver the the holy city from the hand of the unbelievers. But current with that project was punish the Jews. And so they, they raped, pillaged, murdered Jews all the way from Europe to Israel. And that went on for a few centuries. Martin Luther just knew from his experience in the Catholic Church that because it, the way to get, be saved was so screwed up in his mind that the, once the pure gospel was presented to the Jews that they would just embrace it. And he just knew that. And it turned out that the, the Jews were recalcitrant. It made him so mad he became vitriolic in his acidic attack on the Jewish people. He advocated the burning of their synagogues. He wrote tracts to persecute them. Now, let me pause here and, and make something clear. How many of you remember someone coming from a trip overseas and, 
or maybe they lived in, a, in, in another part of the world and they came to us and they said, all you Americans are rich. Remember that? I hated it just like you did. If you've never been out of the U.S., it's like <laughs> I struggle with bills. I worry about jobs. I <laughs> we don't see ourselves as rich. A few years ago, 35 or so of us went to Belize on a missions trip, and this was a co-ed trip. And some of our gals had never been out of the U.S. before, and Belize was even more pitiful then than it was now, than it is now. And I remember on the bus riding from the pitiful little airport to the hotel that some of our gals were in tears because we are rich. We are just rich. And I still hate that. I don't like for people to come in and say, you Americans are all rich. They happen to be right. I just don't like it. And I hate it when somebody talks about Racial prejudice as if they, I finally caught you, you dirty outfit. I used to say I'm not racially prejudiced, whether it's black, white, pink, purple. It doesn't matter. I now say, I don't say I'm not prejudiced. I say, man, I work on it every day. Because I don't intend to be caught in the presence of God hanging on to some stinking sin like that. And the same is true with this. I want, you say, I'm not, I'm not prejudiced against the Jews. Good. I didn't say you were. You said, well, the church, and I did. And that's the reason I took this parenthesis here to make this point. I, I'm not aware of anti-Semitism in this congregation, and that's a good thing, or I'd, I'd speak about it more. <laughs> and that wouldn't be wonderful because you already hear about it regularly. But we have the opportunity to repent for sins that our, like, kinfolks did. It's done all the way through the Bible. Two of the most outstanding people were Daniel and Nehemiah. These guys were about as straight with God as you could be. And they confessed, we have sinned. And then they'd list these sins. So that's what I'm talking about today. And if Crown Point Church has not been pushing back against, against Jerusalem, good because everybody who tries to push against that rock will injure themselves, the promise is. But I want, I want you to say, okay, I, I'll tolerate you saying the church. I just want that in your heart. Would you just please say that to yourself? I'm going to tolerate him talking to me like I'm an anti-Semite. I'm including myself. I will say we, not you. Well, part of the time. But in this meeting now, we... The people who absolutely are about as free from anti-Semitism as anyone in middle America, we gathered together and we confessed the sins, <clears throat> seven different things, and we brought stones in. Uh, Joshua said, as they were making a covenant, these stones are witnesses, and we brought in witnesses to say to God, God, we have sinned, and we're sorry, and the best we understand, we're turning from it, and have mercy upon us. That's what we did. Did that for three nights in a row. I don't know of anyone else in the country that's done this. And the word of the Lord is, and I want you to pay close attention, I want you to get this. God raised up people in the heart of America 
because we refer to ourselves as middle America. If you call this the Midwest, it's not. Midwest is northeast of here. <clears throat> Check the history books. We also call ourselves the heart of America. We are middle America and heart of America. And as the heart of America, we humbled ourselves. Now, when you get your heart right, that's what God looks on. I tell you, I got so excited about this. And it was, it was really funny. <clears throat> uh, funny, interesting, not very hilarious. We were, we were right in the middle of one of these services. And I got a text message from one of the beautiful women in my life, happens to live in the state of Minnesota, that the president had refused to see Netanyahu. And we were just saying, oh, God, have mercy on the U.S. And we were just down, and it was like goosebump city. This is who we are and where we are. And the edge of the country may be doing that, but the heart of America was humbling itself. And it was down before God, and God looks on the heart. I believe, church, that as surely as we as a people have sinned against the nation of Israel and against the Jewish people, that God has raised up in the middle of this country a contrite people. And raised up is like it's almost the wrong word because you don't get with God by rising. You get with God by going down. We have humbled ourselves. Perhaps he has led us to this and humbled us before him so that our heart as a nation might be right. And I, I want one thing out of you today. I want some other stuff, but one thing I want from you today is I want you to begin to identify yourself with the heart of America that God is watching and has already turned to him in this extremely important area of how we relate to the Jewish people. And I know you, some of you may have been taught, well, that covenant of Abraham was done away in the new covenant. No, the covenant of the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic covenant, was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. They are all, God can't make a covenant and, and go back on it. So he rolled the Ten Commandments and that covenant into Jesus so that it's still in place in us and in Jesus. But these other covenants just stand. The Abrahamic covenant which is the one that I read you about from Genesis 12. The Davidic covenant, for instance. The son of David is going to sit on the throne in Israel, judge the world. It's going to happen. I hope you're on the right side of things. Because it's going to happen. So, we have this push-pull. We have this terrible strain. Our foreign policy is doing this and is creating mountains of pushback from the immovable rock. And that's, I, you know, I don't know what to do about that. I've written, I've emailed, I have phoned, and you always get to speak to an assistant, of course, of your legislators, and that's okay. They don't need to talk to me. I don't want to talk to them. I just want to tell them to get right. No. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, that's, you know, they'll get the message. We have that, and it's real. 
it's as real as can be. You see, this, this thing that I presented to you is from late summer. That's who we are and where we are and what's going on. And it continues right on, right on, more and more daylight between the U.S. and Israel. And then we have this thing from God. And I believe revival is coming. I believe this grow, connect, go thing is going to be lived out in us in our time. I believe that to love God and love others, we have already said we're going to do that. And you get to work on that every day because if God doesn't do something you don't like or fail to do something you would have liked, then people will put you to the test. So you get to work on at least one side of this love God, love others every day. And, and we're going to, in the face of whatever comes down in this country, we are going to be victorious. We have the promise of total forgiveness. Our sins are gone. And as heart of America people, we can claim that for our part of the nation. You say, well, my neighbors are really mean. I really hate to claim this for them. Get over it and claim them. Let's get all of the, let's get all of the momentum that we can going to say, God, though if we push against Jerusalem, we're going to be injured. We are blessing Israel and we are blessing lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are crying out for these people that we have prayed for and that you have chosen. And there are people we're praying for that we've never met yet, but we're going to be used in their deliverance, discipleship, their healing, and their releasing to grow, connect, go. That's who we are. And I want today to say to you, dear ones, God is keeping a record. You say, oh, no, that's scary. But you see, I know you. You have those weird thoughts, right? And a lot of the time you feel recalcitrant, right? And if you don't, I don't want to hear it because I deal with this every day. And I look at my thoughts and I say, oh, thank God, that's a temptation. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And that's not who I am. Because it's not what I feel. It's what I do. The world does not understand that. If you feel it, you just have to do it. Get over it. You don't have to do crummy stuff because you feel crummy. You don't have to hurt somebody. You don't have to have, what is it? Um, road rage. Road rage. Oh, that's a wonderful. Is that great? I feel like running him off the road. Well, what did he do? Well, I can't remember for sure, but I don't like him. We can't live like that. We are from another world, if you will. And we have been placed in the heart of God's country. And this is his country because we gave it to him. He may not have wanted it, but he got it anyway. No, he wanted it. And we're, we're going to see revival. Can I prove it? Uh, yep. Look. Can you see that in there? <laughs> it's coming, honey. It's on its way. And the people that you have cried and prayed for are going to come to the Lord. I sat yesterday and visited with a, a young minister who has, has been a lead pastor and has had staff positions. And, and one of the positions just got phased out because of budget cuts. And so now he's 
He's working in the insurance industry, but he's, it's okay and the Lord's working. But in the process of this conversation, one of his little girls, he's got one that's preteen and then he's got one that's about 16, 17. And this, this older one is not living for the Lord. And she's not wild, crazy, doing bad things. She's not living for the Lord, won't go to church. And uh, on Facebook, she might shoot you the bird uh, and have a few choice words, but she's not, he, they're not afraid in, in the sense of what all she's getting into. It's just, it's called recalcitrance. God's going to save that kid. She's stuck. She doesn't have a choice. He said, I want to be free. Good luck. The freedom you have in your strength is to go to hell. Don't exercise that freedom, okay? Please. I get to talking really direct and short, but, but I really do care about you. I really don't want you to go to hell. Jesus paid so that you can be free to choose something else. And the immovable rock in the natural is, is a threat to us as a nation, as people. But the immovable rock in our lives is Jesus Christ and we're standing on him and we are unshakable. And if trouble comes, if, if the economy worsens, more of us lose our jobs, blah, 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 we're going to have revival. We're going to have revival. One of our gals said to me this morning, she said, uh, I said, how are you doing? And she says, I'm on my knees a lot. <laughs> and she's just grinning, beautiful lady, great big smile. And I think, yeah, <laughs> I understand that. The more trouble we have, the better we pray. And for goodness sake, if you get in trouble, don't swell up against God and just start living as if he were not your Lord. So I want us today to do two things. First of all, if you're not walking with the Lord, let's give you an opportunity to just make a choice right here and right now. Would you bow your heads, please? And if you're not walking with Jesus, it is true that every sin you have ever committed or ever will commit was placed in Jesus Christ and Jesus paid for those. And if you need to get right with him, just raise your hand. He loves you. He cares about you. This is a big deal with him. He has gone to a lot of prayer, of problem, trouble to pray. And that's what he's doing today is praying for you. Yes, God bless you. You may lower your hand. Is there someone else? All right, church, let's do, let's, let's kind of wrap up this first thing like this. Would you just bow your heads again? And sir, you who raised your hand, please just repeat this prayer. Pray it out of your heart. And all of us are going to pray this. Please repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry for my sins. I need you in my life. Please come in. I want to make Jesus my Lord. Forgive all my sins. Heal all this brokenness in me. And fill me with your life through Christ. It is because of Jesus I pray. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.
Praise God. Praise God. God heard you. And if you didn't raise your hand, prayed that prayer. <laughs> he loves you. You're why Jesus came. You're what it's about. Hallelujah. The second thing is I want us to posture ourselves as serious worshipers expecting revival. It may break out in this service before we get out of here, or it may not be the kind of revival that we've ever seen. But the harvest is what God is after. And we keep getting these messages. I've run into it several times a week. The harvest is ripe. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. It's ripe. It's ready. Someone was on Facebook a day or two ago in, in the southern part of the country, and the, the cotton crop is ripe. And we don't think of cotton as, as the harvest, but, but it's a harvest. They've gone to a tremendous amount of expense and trouble to get all these fluffy little white things bursting out of these little bowls. Harvest. Are you ready for the harvest? Hallelujah. Let's open our heart. Let's open our heart. When you, Wednesday night, if the Jesus waits to come back and you come in here, come in here and say, Lord, I'm going to give you my whole heart in worship. Is this, is this when the break harvest comes in me? Is this the break? Come. I, I, can you do that? I think, I don't think it's going to be that long. You see, you say, I can't do that too long. I just get tired. I think the Holy Spirit's going to refresh that and you're going to get worse about it instead of getting tired. I think you're going to be refreshed and refreshed and refreshed. Now, harvesting will wear you out, but it's the kind of work that a good night's rest just puts you back because I've worked in the harvest, literally. Worked on a wheat farm, work your tail off, go to bed and sleep, get up, feel great. Same thing the next however long because we spent a lot of hours in the field in those days. And we didn't go in very early, got in about eight but we might be still there at nine o'clock. So, it's the Lord's harvest. Can you see it? Who is it that the Lord is going to use you to get? Let's stand together and lift our voices in worship. Lift our voices in worship. Lift our voices in the victory. This is the day of the harvest. This is the victory. We are not afraid of the immovable rock hurting us because we are the heart of the country and we have been broken before the Lord and repented and we need to keep our heads down but our eyes up somehow and you can do that somehow and expect the victory. God bless you as you worship.